welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We're the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. A special hello to all of our new listeners as we now are part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network and working in partnership with the Guadalupe Radio Network. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm joined by my dear friend, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer, also of the Catholic Association. Gracie, I am so happy to be back, and it's been very sad for, for many different reasons, but it's great to reconnect, and I'm sure lots of people are feeling the importance and value of reconnecting to the people that they love and cherish. So here you are, like the rest of us, quarantined with a lot of extra time. What you need are quarantine lectures. And that's exactly what the Dominican Fathers are giving us, featuring some great conversations with Father Dominic Legg and Father James Brent, as well as other Dominicans that will help nourish our souls during this time of crisis. We'll be featuring some of the talks next week, but for now, check out ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, we've been uh, having to scramble like the rest of America as we were sent into our homes to wait this out. And uh, we're communicating from Miami and from the hills of the Shenandoah Valley, I believe, is where you are, Andrea. I am. It's beautiful. It's actually really beautiful. I think every time I look outside and see the springtime uh blossoming before my eyes I think there's there's some hope here it's a, it's a definitely a struggle that we're all facing but there's a lot of hope and God's totally in charge of things well he's certainly in charge of this pandemic so we have to have a lot of trust and a lot of faith that everything is going to turn out okay we're praying a lot for all uh, those who are sick and all of the all those who are separated from their from their loved ones and feeling lonely so there is one group of nuns who have been working exactly with this population, the elderly and the infirm, for many years. They're the Little Sisters of the Poor. You probably remember their name from their battle with the Obamacare contraceptive mandate that went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in fact, they're going back to the Supreme Court. They've been in order since 1839. Today, the Little Sisters serve over 13,000 of the elderly poor in 31 different countries all over the world. We're very fortunate to have one of the Little Sisters of the Poor joining us by phone. She is Sister Constance Veet. Welcome to Conversations with Consequences, Sister. Thank you, and thank you for having me. And thank you for your concern for the elderly. Sister, these days, everyone's worried about coronavirus, but the elderly and the infirm are especially at risk. Can you tell us what you're doing in your home with, uh, with, with your patients to better care for them? Yes. Well, in the... Um the nursing home sector of uh, healthcare here in the United States is very highly regulated. And so at a time like this, we are blessed in a way to get um, a copious amount of guidelines from the health department coming down from the federal government and then through the states. So, you know, we, in a sense, didn't have to make some of the hard decisions by ourselves because we're pretty much mandated what we need to do, which is to um, do social distancing with our residents, to follow the hand washing guidelines. Um, and we have, uh, for over a week now, we've had a policy in place in all of our homes where no visitors can be admitted, except for in the 
uh, situation if someone would be dying then um, a family member could be admitted under strict uh, conditions but otherwise there are no um, direct visits here in Washington we're currently in the process of setting up a couple of iPads so that we can do Skype with the residents and their families. Sister one of the things that I was touched by is looking at the vows that your order makes and you make the normal vows of chastity poverty and obedience and also something that's particularly lacking and that's hospitality and I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that added element that supernatural outlook that you have of accompanying the elderly poor and and the sick and the dying and how that vow of hospitality is informing what you're facing now sure that's a great question thank you Um, so our vow of hospitality is specifically hospitality to the elderly poor and so that's the only reason why we ever establish a home um, so we're not the same kind of hospitality as the Holiday Inn um, and by that vow we um, it really brings to perfection what we offer the Lord in our other three vows and it makes it very concrete in a day to day minute to minute kind of way and so we as little sisters uh, devote our lives entirely to the care of the elderly we welcome them as members of our own family and try to care for them as we would care for our own grandparents and at the same time as we would care for Jesus Christ himself because Jesus promised that whatever we do to the least of his brothers and sisters we do to him. Sister, you know these people that that you work with, the elderly. What would you recommend to family members who are distanced from them by this coronavirus? And what do you recommend to them? Well, uh, we recommend to everyone, whether the elderly are their relatives or perhaps they have elderly neighbors or people in their parish they know of, to pick up the telephone at least once a day, call them, ask if they're all right. If you are in a position where you can, where you live close enough and you're not in a state where you have sheltering in place, you could go to the home. You can visit through a window. You can, you know, get a look at them and make sure they're all right. And some people we've seen in the news that some people are doing that sort of thing. If you live a great distance away, just pick up the phone, send mail to them. Other things that could be done are to make sure that they have the supplies that they need and you know the elderly I think are not so accustomed to online shopping and things like that so they might need help to order things online that can be delivered to them to order groceries that can be delivered you know they're just the older ones the the younger retirees are are aware of all these things but those way advanced in years are not so used to all this the online world so anything that Um, people can do to help in in that regard make sure they have their um, necessary prescriptions up to date that can be done by telephone there's so much that can be done through technology today and they just might need help to to be able to do those things that are kind of second nature for most of us sister we are still in lent Believe it or not, it seems like it's been the longest Lent. How can people use their almsgiving, their almsgiving to help your order? 
Well, our, all of our homes in the United States have online giving. So if someone wanted to make a donation, they could uh, go online to the website of each home. All of them are Little Sisters of the Poor, then the, the location of the home. So for instance, Washington, Baltimore, Bronx, Little Sisters of the Poor, Washington.org. And we have online giving capabilities. People have been dropping things off, necessary supplies like, you know, the hand wipes, paper towels, toilet paper, things like that. So anybody could drop off. I needed items like that as well. I think for the most part, we're, although we would love to accept donations of homemade food, I think that's not being accepted just out of caution but you know other items um, especially anything packaged be welcome at any of our homes well, thank, thank you. you thank you for asking thank you so much sister constance for all you do for your patients and thank you for that good advice for the rest of us who who need to remember the elderly and the infirm and and the lonely so thank you for yes, joining they, us thank you so much for having us and thank you for your listeners for their concern for the elderly God bless you all. Absolutely. You too, sister. And a perfect transition from speaking with Sister Vita is to talk about the case that the Little Sisters of the Poor have again before the Supreme Court and the wonderful contribution of Catholic organizations throughout history in the U.S. and to this present day. Specifically, uh, here at the Catholic Association in conjunction with EWTN and the Religious Sisters of Mercy of Alma, Michigan, we filed an amicus brief in this case in the Supreme Court. And we have a special guest and a dear friend of ours, Dave Reinhardt, who helped me uh, work on the historical part of this brief. Welcome, Dave, to Conversations with Consequences. Well, good to be here with two of my favorite people. <laughs> Where are you right now physically, Dave? I am in uh, Portland, Oregon, in my uh, study and uh, staying in place as we are uh, being directed to do. Well, good for you. So we're all over the map because uh, as everyone else in the country is, we are learning to work uh, online and remotely. It's, it's been exciting. Yeah, it's exciting and challenging. That's right. So, Dave, what makes your brief special? Well, I, I think it is not only the historical look at what Catholics have done from even uh, before the founding of this country, but also what they continue to do today. And while it focuses on what is being done by large organizations generally, large and small organizations. It also it takes note of what's being done privately and individually in ways that are uncounted and unchronicled really by, by, uh, by historians or uh, current uh, observers. Uh, and it's, and, and they become, they, they're done in uncounted ways because people are just responding to human needs that they find in their neighbors and they're not looking for a, a spotlight. Dave, when we first started our at the top of our show, we were speaking with Sister Constance from the Little Sisters and their or religious order of women and the unique contributions that they're making. In the brief, we talk about a number of other women-led religious orders. Some of them we know about, and some of them I've learned a lot more about in, in doing this research with you and in presenting it to the justice justices. 
What were some of your favorite? Who are some of the great heroines of American Catholic contributions? Sure. Well, I was thinking about that last night and thinking, do I have a favorite? And in, in, in my first inclination was to say, yes, I have one. Uh, but then I, the more I thought about it, the, 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 the women that I, I focused on uh, mainly, I can't say that one is, one is more charming or more <laughs> inspiring than the other. Uh, my, the favorite that I have as it comes from the fact that I'm a, a Philadelphia kid, uh, and uh, grew up in the area where uh, uh, Elizabeth Ann Seton, or, uh, excuse me, Catherine Drexel uh, grew up, uh, mm-hmm. and that is Philadelphia. And I found her story very inspiring for its organizational depth and also its individual depth and I could be would be happy to talk about both of those St. Drexel uh, would be one of them this brief what it's trying to do is to put in front of the Supreme Court justices to put a heart and a face to these efforts uh, by Catholics specifically that uh, are inspired, that their compassion for other people that have made such an impact in, in the lives of so many millions of Americans since before the founding, as you said, that compassion is inspired by the faith that they hold, that the way that they identify with Christ, that the way they try to follow all his teachings, even the ones that aren't popular today. In order for these, uh, these bounties of the Catholic faith to devolve upon all Americans, they have to be able, they have to be allowed to follow even those parts of the faith that are no longer popular. Is that, so is that what you're trying to do for the exactly. justices? Exactly. Uh, and, and it's really a way of saying we Catholics have been here from the beginning, even when in, at some points we were not wanted here at, at, at certain times and there was prejudice against us, but we were very vibrant parts of the, our social uplift, our charitable ways of, of giving. And not only were we participating in that from the very beginning, but we were doing that in the face of opposition to various things that we believed most deeply in. Finally, that, that was recognized actually by leaders that were not Catholic. The, the other thing I would point out is these Catholic individuals and institutions made a point of serving non-Catholics and people of all creeds and all colors. And that that was a beautiful thing. And I think the point that the brief makes is that we Catholics want to be able to do that in in the midst of today's crises and do that without sacrificing those things that not only do we hold most deeply, but that make us who we are. Dave, you mentioned prejudice. Do you ever get the feeling that something like the contraceptive mandate and the way that the states are continuing to to pursue the religious rights of, of religious organizations like the Little Sisters, do you think there's an element of prejudice, that same old awful prejudice that's been 
characteristic? I think it's in a new form. I I think there is that. I think the Catholic Church has been and always will be a challenge to to the the secular world. And the secular world has made a, a almost right of abortion. And the Catholic Church, to its great credit, has stood in the way of that, and it stands in the way of other elements of, of, of current-day secularism. And it's, an on, it's a continuing and ongoing tension. I would agree with you, Dave, and I also want to add, Gracie, that part of the brief that we're trying to do, every opportunity that we have, whether it's in filing a brief or in writing an argument, an op-ed, or even a radio show, is an opportunity to teach and reaffirm. And there are a couple things that I think have gotten lost along the way. Dave mentioned secularism. And lots of good people of goodwill think that you can be philanthropic. And they serve their neighbor out of a philanthropic desire. For us Catholics, it's a charitable, it's loving the other out of love of God. And when we look historically about the kind of seamlessness and the coherence, the internal coherency in serving someone who's very different from you, who often maybe doesn't even like you, but you serve them because you see in them Christ. That's a Catholic and a Christian concept that's gone on since since Christianity started and has been seen in these beautiful ways, in these beautiful examples of American Catholics, and is still going on today. And to divide what we're doing from what we believe would would destroy that seamlessness. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. We're speaking to Dave Reinhardt and Andrea Picciotti-Bayer about an amicus brief before the Supreme Court in the coming uh, Little Sisters of the uh, Poor case, which, remind us again, Andrea, what, when is that case uh, going to be heard? Although maybe everything's postponed, right? Well, right now it's still scheduled. Oral arguments are still scheduled for April 29th, although listeners may know that the Supreme Court canceled their March argument calendar. So it's the fantastic lawyers at Beckett Law are still preparing for an argument in the end of April, but they also know that things may be postponed. Hopefully they won't be postponed. Hopefully this will be a chance, whether it's through virtual or limited public observation, this is a case that can be resolved quickly. Dave, you refused to give us your favorite, although then you finally settled on uh, (laughs) St. Catherine Drexel. But do tell me, of all the things that you mentioned in in the brief that you wrote about in the brief what did you find most touching what situation do you think the the justices will find most touching i think they may find most compelling the work of the uh, the knights of columbus and <laughs> it's because of the organization's great reach it's, it is quintessentially American, I think, you know, in a way, and it has been there through the great crises of America, American history, whether it's World War One, World War Two, or the Civil Rights Movement. The Knights were there. They continue to be there. And in fact, they're not only there, but they're around the world doing work. And this is an organization that 
really started in, in the United States. And what I find most winning about it is that it was started by an Irish-American priest named after a Catholic, named in part because these Catholics at the time faced a lot of discrimination and the name of the organization itself done as a mild rebuke to the the anti-Catholicism that existed at that at that day and yet a hundred years later in 18 1984 the nights were being celebrated at the White House by President Ronald Reagan as one of the great charitable organizations in the United States. And if that's not a great American moment, I don't know what is. Just to follow up on the fabulous work of the Knights, we've been tracking them uh, a lot, especially in their work uh, in defending the persecuted Christians in the Middle East, uh, in Syria and Iraq. One thing that we were using, both Dave and I, in chronicling their history of the Knights and the current contributions was a fabulous book that just came out, and I would recommend everyone click, click, click on Amazon or however you can find it to get this uh, history of the Knights of Columbus, an illustrated history of the Knights of Columbus written by Andrew Walther, who's the Vice President of Communications and Strategic Planning at the Knights. It's a beautiful book. It's a beautiful book with uh, pictures throughout the history of the Knights and chronicles and also highlighting individual Knights who you didn't know were Knights beyond their contributions. And I've found, and I'm sure Dave, you would enjoy this. I've had this book lying around since I received my review copy and my older boys are looking at it. And they're being inspired by the stories of incredible Christian gentlemen who have responded to the needs of others. You know, I would echo that in one way. The the stories in this brief from the history section were just inspiring. And I'm a I'm a convert and didn't know a lot of these stories and didn't know the history of these organizations or these saints. And we were under a tight time frame in putting this brief together, and there was a certain amount of uh, stress in the air. And yet, no, I, I, <laughs> it now can be revealed. And I found this research and writing almost a religious experience in and of itself to learn about these beautiful saints, these impressive organizations and to learn about people that I really didn't know a lot about and to hear some of these stories. And I'll give you one example, if I might. St. Drexel came from a family, a very wealthy Philadelphia family, and she grew up watching her father pray for 30 minutes every night and every week her family which had great means invited the poor and the unlovely oftentimes into their home to provide them with some assistance some housing assistance some food 
And in fact, her mother would go out on other nights because she knew that some of the women in, in Philadelphia were too proud or fearful to ask for help. And we can talk about the orders and the organizations, but it, for me, her parents were emblematic of the great individual works of charity that oftentimes uh, don't go unchronicled. And that's really just a beautiful thing and I think really compelling at a time like this that we face today. I'd also add, Dave, that there was this nice strain of obedience obedience to the directors, obedience oftentimes to the Pope, to leaders like Catherine Drexel, Francis Cabrini as well, who sought out, you know, where should I go? I'd like to go here. I'd like to go to China. And instead, no, go go to the U.S. Uh and help the Italian immigrants in the case of Mother Cabrini. And there is this sense we all have of we need to obey our spiritual advisors right now that are telling us to stay home, but that doesn't mean we don't have to do anything. We can pray, we can help, we can contribute. On on the tone, on that moment of obedience, on, on that theme of obedience, I think what happens sometimes is the secular the secular authorities, the people like uh, the people in the states that are suing the federal government to stop the, the groups like the Little Sisters of the Poor, they think that Catholics, whether we belong to orders or we're just lay Catholics, that we can obey some of the dictates of our religion, like go out and serve the poor and see Christ in your neighbor, but we don't have to obey things like, well, don't don't be participating in in a in a in, a, in, a in providing one. something immoral like an abort an abortive um, contraceptive. So I think that's the point where we break down. The secularists say, yes, go ahead and go ahead and obey when when your God tells you to go serve the poor, but don't obey him. <laughs> when he talks to you about sticky moral, you know, sexual or uh, social issues that we just don't agree with anymore. What do you think about that, Dave? I couldn't agree with you more. And as you were talking, I was thinking that as reflected in the lives and organizations that we discuss in the brief, so often obedience led to good and beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it will, if you ask most people who make a conscious point of being obedient it's not easy the upshot of it is often just beautiful beyond expectations and beyond words oh that's lovely dave absolutely thank you so much for joining us dave and i really hope that uh, your amicus brief yours and andrea's that it will it will inflame the hearts of the supreme court justices with a real respect for the religious impulses that drive good americans out into the world to do uh, wonderful things for others so thank you, you and the work you do bye in the next segment, we have a nice special guest, Father Roger Landry. He joins us every every week to give us a special homily for the upcoming gospel. But today, because he's also sequestered at home and not doing a lot of the things he usually does, he was able to give us 20 of his precious minutes. And we're going to talk to him about spiritual matters around coronavirus. But first, we hear from a medical professional who's on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Next on Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-hostess and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. Joining us now from the front lines is a friend of the families. He is a resident in an area of the United States which is hard hit by the virus. And he has been working um, many, many shifts dealing with virus victims coming in and, and keeping him extremely busy. And he's kind enough to give us a few moments of his time. Hello, I'm not identifying you by name. Thanks Be- for having me. Sure. Uh, let me explain to our listeners. I'm not identifying him by name because it's, it's clear that uh, hospital systems need to have their lines of communication very secure. We want to honor that. And so does our guest. So thank you so much for joining us. So what has it been like to be a busy resident in an emergency room that has been hard hit by the virus it's you know it's been absolute pandemonium and it kind of came on out of nowhere over the past couple weeks it's obviously a virus that no one's really seen before and it's it's can be devastating to people of all ages but i think the main the main the most shocking thing is probably just the volume it seems like literally every every few patients or every every other patient these days in the er is is covid pneumonia and uh, so it's just completely overwhelming the hospital system system right now. I used to work when I was a resident in the emergency room of a busy public hospital. And there were times when we had patients in the hallways waiting for one of the emergency room rooms. Is this what you're seeing, but even to exponentially worse? Yeah, so not even that. I mean, we have people lining the hallway hallways on a normal day, but mm-hmm. now our ICUs are running out of space. So... We've literally gone through about three ICUs at this point that are just completely full of COVID patients, and we're having to kind of improvise and kind of push other ICUs out to make these these kind of makeshift ICUs to accommodate the volume. It's it's been wild. In my experience, hospitals are hospital ICUs are busy places. They're already almost full. So where are all these beds coming from? First, obviously, we filled up the regular ICU, mm-hmm. and then we had to basically kind of move patients that would be in, let's say, a surgical ICU or a neuro ICU into other locations to, to kind of make room for all these patients. So it's almost a complete restructuring of the hospital to accommodate for this. It's something that people have, who have been doctors for decades haven't really seen in their careers. And people who are working with these patients, are they then going home after their shifts to be with their families? How, how does that work? So that's definitely one of the toughest parts. So I, I have my own routine when I get home. I take off all my clothes. I wash them immediately. I disinfect everything I've touched. And um, it still just kind of weighs on your mind. It's, it's hard to kind of be able to just kind of get past it because it's everywhere. The government, the federal government, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, they sent out a directive to the whole country asking that doctors and hospitals put off elective and non-essential, non-elective <laughs> procedures. Uh, is that happening at your hospital? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that happened like two week, two weeks ago. So it's it's funny. So all pretty much all all elective surgeries got canceled. And so you have huge surgery residencies with surgeons that have a lot of time on their hands and nothing to do. So they're actually end up staffing 
the ICUs with the COVID patients right now. So yeah, there's a lot, a lot of changes that are being made to help help deal with this. And how are you able to staff the, the hospitals that are overrunning? Are you calling in doctors that haven't been doing clinical hospital work that may be retired? I, you just mentioned surgery residents who aren't doing elective uh Elective <laughs> surgeries. Yeah, exactly. I'm trying so to think of think some elective surgeries. Most most surgeries are not elective. <laughs> Nobody decides right, right, to have right. a surgery. Yeah, no, it gets. I mean, it gets sticky too. Because what? I mean, uh, you could say, you know, where do you draw that line exactly? Um, but no, I haven't seen retired. I haven't seen any retired doctors being called back into work. But I think that as time goes on and more people get exposed to, to COVID and, and people have to be quarantined, you know, workers, doctors, nurses, techs, that there's going to be major staffage issues. And, and yeah, we're going to have to deal with that as it comes. Tell me, how is it going as far as exposure or infection of the staff? Fortunately, no one, no other residents that I've worked with have gotten sick yet. Um, there's been a couple exposures that have required quarantine, but now we're, we're really fortunate that everyone, everyone is. We're basically maintaining our, our personal protective gear, or PPE, all day. We have an N95 mask. We wear a surgical mask on top of that. We wear a full gown when we go into the, the COVID patients' rooms. We wear goggles, so we're taking every precaution possible. But I think it's only a matter of time before we start to see workers getting sick, unfortunately. So you have to tell our listeners how you were wearing the same mask for a while and what happened. <laughs> so I got to be honest, I owe you guys a huge debt of gratitude. I So basically, masks, masks fortunately, at our hospital aren't completely out of stock yet. They're, they're on their way, though. So they've been telling us to basically wear the same N95 mask for two days in a row. Or first, it was a day, for wear it for a day. Then it was wear it for two days. Now it's wear it for a week before you switch to the neck N95 mask. So that you, is very tough. You guys were nice enough to send me up a ship, and I appreciate it. Oh, well, it was the least we could do. Uh, my husband and I are radiologists, so we're still working, but we're working from home. And <laughs> we feel a little guilty that we're not, we don't have our hands, you know, right in the, right in the mix. But I'm sure if, if, if the hospitals need us, we'll be happy to go. I might hold you to that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much for sharing these insights with us. These patients that you're seeing, are they following the general the general layout that we've noticed that uh, as you get older, uh, you're more likely to end up in the emergency room and intubated? So it's definitely true that it's 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 you know it's, it can be way more damaging to older people. But mm -hmm. we're seeing people of all different ages and end up in the ICU, intubated, requiring you know. Um, ventilators and even ECMO, which is basically a machine that kind of pumps blood and oxygenates your blood for you. So it's, it's, it's definitely higher risk for older people, but anyone from their 20s, 30s, we've, we've seen it just absolutely wreck people. So I think in terms of being safe, people just need to take this extremely seriously because I know the Northeast is getting hit really hard right now, but it's really only a matter of time before the rest of the country is is kind of at the point where we're at so i think that if if you can stay home at all costs um if you have to go out for food or go to the pharmacy or go to a bank just make sure that you you are wearing a mask wear gloves and decontaminate yourself when you when you go home and just be safe as possible wow I'm, it's really important i think to hear that and i i know from where i live i'm seeing a lot of people take it very lightly 
my my older parents, my parents are late. My mother's late seventies, and my father's early eighties. And they they went out today and uh, went to went somewhere and brought us pastelitos, which are Cuban delicacies, and we were very upset. No bueno. <laughs> Stay home. Stay home. So please go home and just stay there. We want you to be with us a few more years. I know. And with people like you uh, working so hard at the hospitals, then even if they end up sick, we, we can hope and pray that they'll they'll make it through. So thank you so much for all you're doing. And, thank you. And thank you for sparing us these, these few minutes of your precious rest time. Of course. Good talking to you. You too. Bye. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, along with my co-hostess and colleague at the Catholic Association, Andrea Picciotti-Bayer. And joining us just now is our friend and very familiar voice to our listeners, Father Roger Landry, who gives us every week such inspiring homilies. But today we have him for a little longer time and we get to talk to him about what's pressing on all of us, this coronavirus pandemic and how we are trying to handle it gracefully and spiritually. Welcome, Father Landry. Great to be with you, Gracie and Andrea. I didn't really give Father Landry an intro, prop, a proper intro. He's a priest of the Diocese of Fall River, Massachusetts, and he writes for several publications. He is the author of a, a book that Andrea and I love, Plan of Life, Habits to Help You Grow Closer to God, and we want to talk to him about that. Uh, but meanwhile, Father, given the coronavirus crisis, what can you tell us off the bat to help us handle this better spiritually? Many of our daily lives have changed, and so it can be a change for the better or it can be a change for the worse, depending upon what types of habits we immediately start living by. And so I'd encourage everyone to be very intentional in terms of how they're going to use the time that they have. Some are going to have less time. Some are going to have to be working from home at the same time. If they've got young kids, they're basically going to be homeschooling. Others are going to have a lot more time on their hands. But regardless of how much time we have, to be able to structure it in a way that comes from within rather than from our environment is the first big step for each of us. And that's going to be a challenge for for many because most of us have never been in an extended situation like that. So structure is key. Second is just making sure that there's plenty of room for God. For some people, that's going to allow lots of time for prayer and reading. For some, it might mean just five or ten minutes more, depending upon what it is. But to structure that situation, not just trying to squeeze God in, but to center the situation around God and then build everything else around him. And then the third, at this, uh, you know, at this time of social distancing, I do think it's very important for us to keep the human dimension front and center. Social distancing is not in accord with human nature. It's, a, it's an exigency of the time to make sure that we're not passing on coronavirus or, or other illnesses to anybody else. But there is this real need for this human interaction. And so whether that's, for example, looking people straight in the eyes and talking to them rather than multitasking when we're in the same place as someone, to Skyping and FaceTiming and telephoning and even sending some letters to people to make sure that we keep that most human dimension, that social nature of our person, not just at a basic level, but to exercise that muscle of the heart. 
without that, we could become even more isolated and lonely during this time. And we know spiritually that the one who's constantly trying to isolate us and make us more lonely comes from below, not from above. Father, you wrote an incredibly thought-provoking article in the National Catholic Register it's about how we can focus on developing even more our virtuous life. The article is about the four virtues you need in this time of crisis. So the whole article was about the courage we need during this time and then the virtues that would make us courageous. What disappointed me and continues to disappoint me a little bit is the centuries of Christianity have been marked by heroism in time of crisis. We always need to merge that with prudence, but I just thought that the epidemic of fear was spreading faster than the coronavirus. And so Mm -hmm. at the same time that we're doing all the medical precautions, it's so important for us not to cave in to a sense of fear because Jesus never told us, be afraid. Mm -hmm. He was constantly saying, don't be afraid for I am with you. And so I I talked about courage. I talked about St. Charles Borromeo and all that he did in the plague that struck Milan in 1586 and how he has given a model specifically for clergy to be able to go out and make sure that they're caring for people, not just bodily needs, but also the needs of their souls at times of crisis. Because frankly, the time of crisis can be one in which somebody can separate even from God. And we need to bring the means of salvation as much as we can to the people in their own circumstances. And then I asked the question, what makes us courageous in times of trial? And I said that there are basically four underlying virtues, but the first was faith, the second was prudence, the third was charity, and then the fourth was patience, properly understood as this capacity to suffer and this lack of a phobia with regard to death. That's so interesting, Father, because in this time of sort of generalized global panic, what we're all panicked about, number one is our health, our physical health, and number two is our economic health. And in general, it's very easy to forget our spiritual and moral health, right? And when when that's actually the opposite way of, of how we should be looking at our lives. Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount was very clear that we shouldn't worry even about the things that are absolutely essential in life. What you are to eat, what you are to drink, what you are to wear, and where you are to sleep. He said, your Heavenly Father knows you need these things. Mm. Jesus wanted us to trust in God's providence. If we're not trusting in God's providence, then the other normal human fears will start to eat us alive. The economic fear that you described, the fear over our health, we can start to obsess about those things so much that we become less as human beings. We start to become irritable toward others. Our relationship with ourselves, our relationship with others, and our relationship with God, all in a sense spiritually atrophy. And so the antidote for that, far more than the hydroxychloroquine of the soul, (laughs) is that we work on that relationship with God. If we have that foundation on Him who is the rock, then we can much more serenely address the situations that come up, many of which are not under our control, but they are under God's control. Father, we're facing something in our lives that's fairly unique. But one thing that you mentioned before that that kind of resonated with me was that this pandemic and this fear is something that we've seen throughout human history. And touching on Archbishop Charles Borromeo's response was very fascinating, mainly because he 
was in the middle of all of this strife, the plague, and I was thinking, wow, that's a coincidence. And then I remembered there are no coincidences in the often charming world of God. What are the lessons that we can learn? Charles Borromeo had an indomitable faith. And he tried to inspire the people of his own age to a similar trust in God. When the civil leaders in Milan in the 1570s all fled in order to care for themselves and their families over the people that they had sworn to protect and provide for, Charles Romeo knew into that vacuum if he didn't bring his enormous organizational ability in the whole sort of organization of the church to that situation, that way more would have died. And so he began to persuade the parish priests to get outside of their uh, rectories and outside of their parishes to go out and search for those who really needed help. He got the religious order priests to likewise join in the fight, the women's religious orders, etc. He tried to marshal the whole church to shine most in that time of darkness, and they rose to the occasion. And, you know, Charles said when many of his priests were afraid, for example, of catching the coronavirus, he said, listen, the martyrs were certain of their death, and yet many of them went singing hymns, conscious of the fact that as soon as they were to die, they would be in the risen Lord's arms for all eternity. He said, for us, when we go on out and sort of put our health on the line in order to care for those who are suffering from the plague, we're not even certain we're going to die. We just have to put our lives at risk. And if the martyrs were capable of doing it when they had a certainty about their death, can't we just risk it? And, you know, he, he, in a very manly way, led the church out to those on the peripheries of human life. And, you know, his heroism and the heroism of all those who went out into the streets with him is something that the church has never forgotten. Well, thank you, Father, so much for all these, all this great advice, especially spiritual advice. And we hope that you stay safe in that very friendly, very busy, or actually now sleeping city of New York. Thank you, Gracie. Thank you, Andrea. I look forward to joining you at the end of the program for the homily for tomorrow. Oh, wonderful. We're looking it's forward wonderful. to it. Thank you, Father. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at the Catholic Association. Org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's good to be back with you at the end of the program to have a chance to ponder with you the consequential conversation Jesus wants to have with the Church tomorrow on the fifth Sunday of Lent. In the present situation of the coronavirus pandemic, it's a very poignant and relevant dialogue, one that should have a big impact on our faith and hope. When Martha and Mary sent Jesus a message that their brother Lazarus was ill, Jesus remained where he was for two days, basically until Lazarus was dead. Confused the apostles and confused Martha and Mary. When Jesus finally arrived, Martha ran out to greet him and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. When Mary came later, she used exactly the same words. They had faith in Jesus that he could have healed their brother, just like he had healed so many others. But Martha's hope wasn't extinguished with her brother's death. She said to Jesus, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. 
It was now the fourth day, and Jews, based on different passages in the Old Testament, believed that a person's soul hovered around the body for three days after death. But by the fourth day, the person had passed to the place of no return. Martha, however, was not intimidated. Whatever you ask of God, God will give you, she said. That led to one of the most fascinating dialogues on the meaning of faith we have in the gospel. Jesus said to Martha, your brother will rise. And Martha replied immediately with stunning words, I know he will rise in the resurrection in the last day. She, together with Lazarus and Mary, had probably asked Jesus during one of his visits to their home to reveal to them what would happen to us after death. And learned from Jesus how he would re- destroy death and restore life. She had forgotten the lesson about the general resurrection he taught them. But that's not what she was requesting. And that's not what Jesus himself was immediately planning to do. Jesus told her that ultimately the resurrection is not so much a concept or a state or an event, but a relationship. I am, he told her, the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if he dies, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. To be risen from the dead, to be fully alive, means to be in a living, loving friendship with Jesus. If one lives and dies in a friendship with Jesus like this, Jesus affirms, then death is nothing other than the change of address. As a person continues in relationship with him who is the life and who came to give us life to the full. But Jesus looked Martha right in the eyes and asked, Do you believe this? Jesus asked us the same question. For us to look at the resurrection of life not as concepts, but as a personal relationship, requires looking at Jesus not just as an important historical figure, but as a living, acting, breathing, loving Savior, present right now seeking to raise us to experience life to the full. Martha didn't reply to Jesus' question by saying merely, Yes, Lord. She presented us the grounds of faith. She said, Yes, Lord, I have come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who is coming into the world. Because of her living faith in Jesus, because of her trust in him, she committed herself to believing anything he would say, even if it seemed hard or impossible to believe. Because of her faith, Martha recognized that the resurrection of life was standing before her. Because of her faith, she would be raised from the dead by her faith-filled relationship with Jesus, even before her brother Lazarus would be liberated from the tomb. Jesus wants us to have that same resurrection now. Before leaving for Bethany, Jesus had said to his disciples, Lazarus is dead. For your sake, I'm glad I wasn't there so that you might believe. Jesus worked the miracle of raising Lazarus from the tomb on the fourth day the way he did so that we might believe so that we might grow in faith, trusting in his words, even and especially when they're the most challenging. We're certainly living in one of those challenging times now. By this point, all of us know people who have contracted the coronavirus. Many of us know people who are struggling for their life. Some of us know people who have already died as a result. It's tempting for us to say, Jesus, if you had been here, if you had been active, my brother or father or friend would not have gotten affected, would not be suffering, would not have died. But we must approach the situation with faith like Martha and Mary. Jesus had said prior to the journey to Bethany, This illness is not to end in death, but is for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Even illnesses, even deaths, can work out for God's glory and work out for the good of those who love God. Jesus asks us, Do you believe this? And he wants us to place our trust in him and in his promises. 
We know that while Lazarus' resurrection was a, resur- was a resuscitation to an earthly life, from which he would have to die again. Jesus' resurrection, and the resurrection in which he hoped we would share, would be a resurrection forward to a completely new state of life from which we would never die again. In raising Lazarus, he manifested both his power and his desire to do this. As we enter more deeply into Lent and as we seek to be the salt, light, and leaven in the midst of the coronavirus, Jesus wants us to have our faith in him grow, him who is the resurrection life, confident that even if we should die, if we die in him, we will live, and no one who lives and believes in him will ever die. How do we in this life encounter and befriend Jesus as Martha, Mary, and Lazarus did? How do we experience the resurrection the life and the present that he wants to give us? We do so first through prayer, that heart-to-heart conversation with him who listens, speaks, and comes to abide in us. We do so through the sacraments and our hunger for them. We do so through charity, which the love with which he loves us overflows into our love for others. Jesus provides the means to enter into him, and we're called to seize those gifts. It all comes down to Jesus' love for us. Just as much as St. John tells us that Jesus loved Martha and his sister Mary and Lazarus and the crowd, seeing him weeping at Lazarus' tomb, said, look how much he loved him. So Jesus loves us just as personally and just as much. It's obvious that Jesus from a distance could have cured Lazarus and even brought him back to life. After all, he had already worked several such miracles from a distance. By going up to work the miracle in person when the Pharisees had put a contract out on his head, however, he was showing everyone that helping Lazarus was worth his life. In a similar way, God could have come up with another means to save us without Jesus leaving heaven, without his taking on our flesh, without his going up to Calvary and being massacred on a cross. But he likewise wanted to show us we too are worth saving. The greatest source of our human dignity is Jesus accounted our lives more valuable than his own, was willing to take our place on death row to give his life for ours. If we could listen to the angels, seeing this love that Jesus has for each of us, we would hear them saying, look at how much he loves you and loves me. And in this most consequential conversation tomorrow, Jesus asks, do you believe this? If we say yes, then he says, put your faith in me now. Come out of your tomb and live in friendship with me in this world, so that that friendship, that resurrection, and that life will continue forever. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. You can listen to us on the radio at 5 p.m. on your EWTN local affiliate or on Sirius Channel 130. Or listen to the show as a podcast at thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts. Thank you for joining us today. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy in meeting this crisis that we're all in. And you go with our prayers. <laughs>